I was with someone recently who was going through a very difficult trial. And they said something along the lines of, I catch myself, is it strange that I catch myself feeling a gratitude that I'm being allowed to go through something like this? And when they asked that, I immediately thought of several scriptures, Acts and Peter and James. But I want to ask you that question tonight. What could ever make someone rejoice? What could ever make someone feel some measure of gratitude, even though tempered by pain and sorrow, what could make someone feel some measure of some kind of gratitude at the opportunity to go through something hard? Anybody? Yes, sir. Brother Jim's gone through cancer, so we'd like to hear from you. Amen. Amen. How many of us are familiar with the story or, the, or the, the account there in Hebrews 2 where it says, It was fitting for God, for whom all things are created and by whom all things exist, that he should make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was God in human form. He was perfect, but there was something that was worked through him even still in the midst of his suffering. How many of you have ever heard about or seen or known people who launched on careers that almost seemed pointless? They seem to be arduous trials with no ultimate or enduring goal or destination. How many of you ever heard of people motivated by such objectives? Hmm? Edmund Hillary, the first man to climb Mount Everest, they asked him, why did you do it? And he said, because it's there. I don't agree with that reasoning, but there's something that he's getting at. There are people who spend years preparing to climb that mountain, and when they get to the top, they're not conquering a city. They're not inheriting a fortune. They're spending a fortune. Why do they do it? Why does a boxer go into the ring day after day or week after week? Why does he do it? Why does a man run a marathon or try to compete in a race of any kind. Why does he do it? Can I read you a scripture? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith. I'm just going to underline that and we'll come back to it. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith. Can everybody say that? Proof of your faith. Being more precious, he doesn't say the faith is more precious. He says the proof of the faith is more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying in the first book, the first chapter, we, rejo we, we rejoice greatly if we go through seasonal troubles because it proves something to us about ourselves. So I ask you back to the athlete, back to the man who conquers these seemingly temporal fleeting objectives. Why does he do it? And I think the answer is he wants to know something about himself. He longs to know what he's made of. My dad has often said that if we would live the life God's called us to live, it is replete with enough challenges we wouldn't have to fabricate artificial ones to prove ourselves by. But there's something in all of us that wants to know. There's something in a woman who's facing childbirth for the first time that wants to know. They want to know, can I do this? Am I equal to the task? Can I face the pain? Can I travail? Is life worth it to me? What is going to be revealed in me? And there's something in a couple that feels the same way about their relationship. I hate the agony of birth. I've gone through it six times and I, I, I haven't gone through it. I've witnessed it six times. I hate it. I never get excited about it. It's, oh God. I get excited about it being over. I get excited about the result. But there's something even in me that feels like, oh Lord, here we come again. And it's going to be proven what we have between us. It's going to be proven what we have in you. Here we come again, the testing of our faith. Now I can tell you that every birth is a test. The ones that have succeeded in my experience, they were all tests. And they all proved something. But those which proved the most were those that did not unfold or turn out as I expected. 
If you know the result, you're sure you're going to win. Then you go into the fight and it's not so big of a test. It's already in the bag. But when you don't know and things turn and things happen, well, then you're really in the test. And you want to know what's going to be revealed. What's going to be revealed in me? What is going to be shown? The enemy mocks your faith, amen? The world mocks your faith. That's not, that's useless. That's just make-believe. The enemy mocks your faith in God's word. And you wonder, you say, do I really have it? Do I really have what it would take? Have you ever read the stories of the martyrs? Anybody? Raise your hand. And have you wondered, oh God, could I do that? Could I endure? What would I say if I saw my family or those I loved put under threat or duress? Would I be faithful? So we don't know. Faith may just be an assumption. It may just be a delusion. It may just be a wishful thought that we've persuaded ourselves of. We know that in times of crisis, some people have lost their faith. Like rats jumping off a ship, ship some so-called Christians leap off their faith as fast as they can. We know that in times of war, some were revealed to have a deeper love than they knew was there. And they protected those in danger. Safta Shosh told me recently that Poland had the distinction of being the most racist country in Europe during the Holocaust season, while at the same time being the country with the most people to protect and save those persecuted, the Jews persecuted by the Nazi regime. Isn't that interesting? Most racist, and yet there were some who had a faith that when the fires turned up and the heat was on them, something was revealed that they didn't even know they had. Like the lady who buried names in a jar and placed children all over her region, the school teacher. Or like the people in, in, in the Netherlands who protected m numerous uh, refugees, m numerous uh, escapees from the, the Nazi persecution. Corey Tim Boone and her family, amen? Something was revealed. And have you ever read those books and wondered, what would I do? What would I say? You see, someday we're going to go through a trial that is going to prove the veracity or the falsehood of our faith. Someday we're all going to go through that because we're all going to face death. There's no discharge from that battle. And it's a gift, it's a blessing from God to let things come ahead of time that give us a chance to evaluate. Okay, Lord, I, I did have faith, but it wasn't nearly what I thought it was. Wasn't Peter caught in this place? 
Simon Peter, the apostle with the keys to the kingdom. And what did Jesus tell him just before the trial of the cross? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. What did he pray? That your faith would not fail. The devil's sifting will never be successful if there's some genuine faith down inside of us. Now, if that's a Pollyanna faith that imagines that everything is supposed to go just right, then when everything goes just wrong, our faith is going to fail. So we've got to know what our faith is in and what it's not in. Peter had two kinds of faith. He had a measure of faith in Jesus and he had a lot of faith in himself. Those two kinds of faith will prove mutually exclusive in the heat of the proving, the testing, the trial. What happened to his faith in himself? Did that faith fail him? Hmm? It failed him miserably. And he found himself outside shaking with sobs, weeping. But there was a little measure of faith that made eye contact with Jesus and kept it. There was a little measure of faith. Though he didn't believe the Lord's words about himself, nonetheless, he still believed the Lord. And when he came through, the only thing that remained was that little measure that he had in the Lord. Before he wanted to say to the Lord, Lord, I know all things, let me show you. And what does he say after? Lord, you know all things, let you show me. <laughs> I don't think he was happy with what he discovered. I think he imagined that he had more faith than he did in God. So we have to know what is our faith posited in. What is it in? And I'm asking you that now. What is your faith in? What does your faith latch hold of? What does it hook on? The Word of God. Why do we say that? Faith comes by hearing. At least faith in God does. It comes by hearing the Word of God. So you say, well, okay, so faith comes by hearing the Word of God. I want to have faith in the Word of God. But then the question comes, how do you know it's the Word of God? Are you interpreting it right? Well, you, you may have to go through a process of learning and discovering how to please the Lord, Ephesians 4 tells us, amen, trying to learn how to please the Lord. Paul was still trying. How many of you would envy the spiritual maturity of the Apostle Paul? And he never made mistakes. He never got it wrong. He heard one day that God wanted him to go to Asia. So he called Luke and the other guys together and they went and they got to the gates and something told them don't enter but they just pushed right through because he knows how to hear from God and he never makes mistakes, right? Paul believed God wanted them to go to Asia, but what happened when they got to Asia? 
He had a discovery. I was feeling something, but this ain't it. And he had the humility to recalibrate and say, God, I'm not here to prove anything. I'm not here to show how spiritual I am or determined I am. I'm just here to be dependent on you. And I thought it was you and you've brought me this far, but I'm going to wait now. Oh, I feel like we're supposed to go to Bithynia. So they got up and they went to Bithynia. What happened then? Oh boy. It says the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him enter the city. It prevented him at the gates. Have you ever felt sure you had God's direction and the Lord went like this at the gate? That's okay because it only hurts your pride. It only undermines your confidence in your carnal mind. It doesn't hurt God. It's okay to say we thought this was God's will, but we're not going to have so much pride to just push through in the flesh when it doesn't feel like the Lord is confirming it all the way through the process. If I make a long journey and he stops me at the gate, I'm not going to make that journey push me through something that's not God's will. And so all of his companions said, this guy can't hear from God. We're going back to the Catholic church where we don't have to hear from God. And they dispersed and we never heard from Paul again. Pretty much what happened, right? Is that what happened? Paul was getting an impetus from the Spirit. And he wasn't willing to sit there and twiddle his thumbs until he figured out what God was prompting. He was going to try and try and try until he got what God was sanctioning, what God was anointing. The very next morning, he woke up and told the guys, I, got a, I had a dream last night. Did they roll their eyes? Oh, brother. Silas said, let's go. Let's go. What was your dream? I saw a man, and for once, God showed me where he was. He was in Macedonia. Amen. In a city called Philippi or whatever it was. So off he goes, and the Lord just confirms it. They get arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> and what does he start doing in that jail? Silas. I feel like God is helping us prove who we've really got faith in. Let's just start thanking God right now. That's what I think he was doing. He wasn't trying to look spiritual. <laughs> he wasn't saying, well, let's consider the pious thing to do. <laughs> if you were on television, what would you do? <laughs> Bat your eyes and go to hymn number 24 <laughs> and sing in the most beatific false voice you can muster. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think he was looking at Silas and Silas was looking at him and saying, it's real, Silas. God sent us. And if he sent us, he wants us here at this moment. Let's praise him that we can trust him and not ourselves. Hallelujah. He wasn't saying, let's praise, let's sing, because I think that the jail's going to start to shake. And if you do that, you're just playing games with your own mind and soul. He was saying, 
Let's praise and let's sing because we're counted worthy to prove that our faith is not fool's gold, it's real gold. And that's going to result in glory and praise at the coming of the Lord, whether that be when they kill us in the morning or when the Lord returns in the second coming. Let's praise him that we've got real faith in him and not ourselves. So they started to sing. And the problem with Christians is they see try, 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 succeed, get locked in prison, miserable, but sing, and the prison opens. And so they say, aha, when my flesh is reigning over my life and pitching a wall-eyed temper fit, then I'll just do a little praise or I'll give a testimony or I'll have a prayer of surrender and I'll just hold my breath. Mm, okay, Lord, <laughs> it's been five minutes. And if it doesn't happen, then I'll say, I don't know why I ever believed in God. You didn't. You believed in yourself. And you believed in your capacity to manipulate God but you didn't really believe in him. Your belief in God begins when you don't know how this is gonna turn out and you don't care. You just know he knows and it's all in his hands. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Various trials, not one specific kind. Not just when they chop your head off, it'd be hard to rejoice at that point except in heaven, but not just when you're arrested or going through some sort of religious persecution. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. What does it produce? Patience. If the testing of your faith doesn't produce patience, it wasn't faith. Did you hear me? It wasn't faith. Because faith produces patience when it is tested. The testing of your faith produces patient endurance is the word in the Greek there. And let patience have it's perfect way. How many of us enjoy it when patience gets to have it its way? Well, you know how many flesh, how many carnal natures enjoy it? None. <laughs> because that is patience's way. To suffocate the carnal nature. To drag it out until it can't survive. That's the way of patience. By your patience possess ye your souls, Jesus said. Let it have its perfect way so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if anyone lacks wisdom. Why, why does he connect a loss of patience to a deficit of wisdom? Because the impatient can only live in the immediacy of the moment. They do not see that there is an eternal purpose. They do not trust that God sees from above the end from the beginning and that something is unfolding outside their timetable. Patience 
requires a trust, a wisdom that does not reduce life down to this hedonistic immediacy of the right now. When Satan does that to any one of us, he is taking us captive through the deceitfulness of unrighteousness. Righteousness does not make sense in the hedonistic moment of right now. What does the Bible say when it talks about the wicked and their path toward destruction? Oh, that they would know their latter end. They don't have the big picture of wisdom that would produce the patience that would allow them to be perfected and changed in God's timetable. Testing of real faith produces patience. I want to emphasize that it says produces it. It does not just say that it reveals it. The testing reveals the veracity of the faith, but it produces a byproduct that you can't be saved apart from. It produces patience. We may claim to have patience, but we have not, we don't have the product. It hadn't been produced until we've gone through something harrowing and slow, painful and lonely, isolating, confusing, until we have walked through the furnace. Oh God, we don't have the product of patience in our hands, in our souls. Beloved, do not be surprised, 1 Peter 4, at the fiery ordeal. Who likes ordeals? I don't. <laughs> Good morning. Got a fiery ordeal for you. Wow. <laughs> I was wondering if it'd be today. Who likes that? <laughs> Nobody looks forward to that, and we'd be idiots if we did. But we look forward to what it's going to reveal about us. And so there's this mixture of our soul wanting to have the assurance that we really have faith, and our flesh saying, oh God, please make it short. <laughs> Beloved, do not be surprised. at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. This is three chapters later in the same book I've been reading in. It comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing. Is he tying joy and rejoicing to the continuance in fiery ordeals? Is he suggesting that if you ever get past your fiery ordeals and there's no more struggle, that you should stop rejoicing and you should start worrying? When all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets. 
Is that what he's suggesting? I think that's what he's suggesting. Because in that place of apathy, of complacency, of sleep and slumber, in that place, we don't know whether we've got faith or not. We don't know. We may be relying on fool's gold and imagining that it was pure gold all the while. To the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Looks to me like it almost says that you may rejoice with great rejoicing. Basically what it says. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment, or you could say testing, to begin at the house of God. He's saying the house of God is full of stuff that is shiny and looks like gold. But it's time for this house to find out how much of what it relies on, how much of it is really God-inspired faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What would happen? Do you ever wonder? Do you ever think about the 21st century American church going through the trials that the Bible indicates are going to come on the earth? Do you ever picture their faces? Does your heart ache and squeeze at the realization that multitudes are going to be pulling out their hair in utter despair because Peter says, we are protected by the power of God through faith from all the, the fiery darts of the devil. But if we don't have real faith, we are without protection. And they are leaning on something that is not faith. It is faith in the idea of faith, but it is not faith in God, his presence, or his word. These are the people for whom when disaster strikes, there is no rejoicing because what is proven is that they did not have faith. They die saying, why did this happen to me? As if God has promised good things to good people and bad things to bad people. He says in this world, you will have trouble, pain, anguish, and tribulation. That's what that word means. There is nothing in the New Testament that promises us a tranquil life. The psalmist looked at the wicked and he was envious of their life because in his perspective, people who turn their back on God mysteriously, inexplicably, seem to partake of less suffering than those who were devoted to God. I think that's distinctly possibly true. We don't want to be among that number whose faith fails in the time of testing. 
We know we're going to see things in ourselves we don't want to see. We know it's going to be less than we thought on some level. But we want to come through with the golden thread intact. We want to come through and say, God, I'm so glad that my faith is in you. It's not in my ability to hear you either. It's in you. It's not in my notions about you or my notions about what you're going to do for me either. It's in you, God. And I can't be shaken. He says, rejoice when you go through testing because it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God and if it begins with us first. What he's telling us is that when trouble is fixing to come on the world, trouble in the house of God is going to intensify. Fiery trials in the house of God are going to intensify and increase when a judgment is coming on the world. Because God is trying to prepare his avant-garde. He is trying to put together a team who have a real faith. He's trying to put together people who have faced the lion, who have won the battle, who have wrestled with the bear. Amen. And can say, all right, guys, we can take down Goliath also. Amen. Job was the first forerunner of suffering. And the arsenal of his patience, we still use it to this day. We pull arrows from his quiver. Amen. We do battle based on the patience that he won for us that was produced in him through his affliction. And in the same way, we are filling up the body with patient endurance these days. It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God, and that judgment could be testing, is one rendering of that. And if it begins with us first, did you hear that? First, is that what they teach you? That Christians will go through trouble first? No, it's not. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? They don't have the kind of faith that produces obedience. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, those who suffer. So he ties it all together, one big package. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Those who suffer. So he, he's talking about testing in this fiery trial discussion. He never mentions faith, but he finishes the whole thing with trust. It's the same thing he was saying three chapters earlier in, in chapter one. So God, I don't want trouble. But I do want to be sure that I've got real faith. And one way I can be sure is I can test what my faith produces. Can a good tree produce bad fruit? Can a bad tree produce good fruit? People can make mistakes. James says we all stumble in many ways. John said if any man says he's without sin, he's a liar. But your faith does not produce bad fruit. It produces under pressure what the Lord says it's going to produce, which is patient endurance. And if it doesn't produce that, it's not faith. And you need to evaluate, what is it, Lord? Because I'd like to get that thing that produces what I need in order to be saved. What is the opposite of faith? Unbelief. Fair enough? 
But what is faith most often juxtaposed against in the Bible, in the New Testament? Doubt. Does the Bible teach that we should doubt? Yes. Dan, you shouldn't have answered that. I knew you were going to catch that. That was supposed to go right past you. <laughs> the Bible absolutely does teach that we should doubt. The very word used time and time and again throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, diacrino in the Greek, that says you must have faith without any doubting. The word that says he, is like, he who doubts is like the wave of the sea. All those bad words of doubt. Do you know that that's the same word when he says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged? The Bible teaches doubt. It teaches we should exercise, engage in the work, the process of doubt. Who are we supposed to doubt? Ourselves. That word diacrino means analysis, examination, to call into question. Its primary thing does not mean to call into question. The first four definitions refer to carefully looking at it. So the Bible says don't be putting God's word under the microscope to see whether he's true. He's true. Settle that in your heart. Put yourself under the microscope to see if you qualify. Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourself. If Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. Tests have come. Tests will come. But let's not fail the test. Let's change what we think faith is and conform to what the Bible shows us faith is. And let's face the trials as a chance to see, God, what am I made of? What's inside of me? And I want to say that one of the biggest enemies of true faith, legitimate trust, is the certainty of our own perspective. You cannot have faith, which is trust in the will of God, if you know what should happen already. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you know what really should happen? The Bible says we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. But we do know what the results should be, right? Did Paul anticipate that jail cell? Hmm? Is that what he was praying for? Just give us a jail cell, Lord. Whatever it takes. Is that what he was praying for? But we don't know how to pray how we ought. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. So with groanings too deep for words, the Spirit can pray things we'd never dare to pray. Let me ask you a question. Many of you know, this is treading into dangerous territory, so stop me if I get in trouble. So if I do something bad, it's his fault now because he's responsible. Many of you heard a dear sister in her late 70s, you saw her baptized last year. And she gave testimony that her heart turned. I don't know if she's with us tonight, but her heart turned. And the process of birthing her into the kingdom began at what point? At the, f at the cold funeral 
of her two-year-old grandson who died suddenly without explanation. I want you to be thankful that you're not God and that you don't have a crying clue what's needed. Let me give you an example. If God came to you and said, you're praying for your grandmother and she can make it, but this is what it's going to take. Would you be willing to do it? It's a bizarre question to even ask because we don't have to answer that question. We're thankful that we're not God. God gave up his only begotten son. And if we have pledged our lives to God, if we have said, Lord, your kingdom come, use me in any way you want. Show your love through me. Spread the fragrance of your salvation to this world through me. If God had said, I need someone in their 30s to bear a cross of cancer and it will result in the salvation of a brother and a sister across the country, I think in that case many hands would go up. Would you be willing to do that? I hope I would. It's not being asked, so I don't, we don't have to go there. But you get what I'm saying. You'd be willing to do it. But that's what it took. That's what it took. Let's not rob Christians of the meaning of their suffering. Because it is salvation to a world that needs to see a different kind of faith than Pollyanna make-belief. When Paul says, I fill up in my body the afflictions that are lacking in Christ's sacrifice, what he's saying is what he said when he told the Corinthians, we are persecuted, we are put to death all day long for your sakes. He wrote them and he said, I am in prison, I am in chains. He went through this litany of personal struggles and he said, this big categorical statement, he said, all these things are for your sakes. Paul said, I'm not going to let my suffering be a dead-end waste like all the world faces suffering as just an empty void. No, I'm going to let it be a proof. I'm going to let it be a proof of the God who I have faith in. I'm going to let it be a proof of the veracity of the faith I claim. I'm going to let it be a proof that in the face of the devil's worst weapons, peace can persist in the midst of the storm. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. If God said to a couple, I want to use you. I want to birth a ministry in you. But just like I needed Jesus to suffer and pay the full price on the cross, I need you to go through something that's going to be very painful. And you can kick against it, you can complain against it, you can whine against it, and it'll destroy you. Or you can trust me. And I'll put another pin dot in the map and say, consider my servant this one also, and that one also, and this one also, and that one over there. Sister Jer, 
has suffered the same affliction. And she's been to so many of us what others were to you. We're all in the same thing together. This is where it has meaning. This is where it's dignified as more than chance and happenstance. Can I read you a scripture? I found this in the Devil's Bible, and I wanted to read it to you. Oh, I can just feel how anxious everybody's getting. <laughs> this is fantastic. <clears throat> Suffering produces fear, whining, and quitting. Quitting destroys good character. Without character, none can resist Satan's lies, and they lose hope. Without hope, none can exercise the faith to receive the Spirit. Without the Spirit, no love of God is shed abroad in their hearts. And without the love of God, the end is always and only despair. Do you recognize that scripture? Thank you. Romans 5. It's the, it's, the, it's the version according to the devil. Here's what it actually says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. You lose access if you lose faith. Into this grace. I don't feel any grace. Well, I understand. It's because you don't have faith. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Do you understand that grace is not a piece of paper? It's not an exemption. It's a quantity. It's a something. The Bible tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So grace is something that you stand in. It's waters that you wade in. It's a substance because it's the spirit of grace. Anyway, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. So it's not just Peter. Because we know that suffering produces. Should we just stop there? Suffering produces quitting. And quitting produces a loss of character. Oh, I got my translations mixed up again. What does suffering produce? Suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, what is perseverance? Suffering is when things don't go the way they should go, according to your will. And what is perseverance? When things still aren't going the way they should go, according to your will. Perseverance is getting comfortable, finding your rhythm in the life that doesn't go as it should, do, should go, according to your plan and your will. That's perseverance. And perseverance produces something else. What does perseverance produce? Character. If you can't stick with it, when you're going through it, when the fiery trials are getting hotter, if you can't stick with it, you do not have character. 
You do not have moral strength. And character produces something else. What does character produce? Hope. You should be hopeless if you don't have character. Hope is the birthright of the people with character. And hope never disappoints. Is that period? Is that what he says? Just stops there? And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the supernatural arrangement of perfect circumstances that looked bad at first. It was amazing. I had to count to ten. But then the jail started to shake. No. Hope, the absence of hope is despair. Amen? But hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God has given us the outpouring and the deposit, the substance of his love, which is able to be victorious. Our hopes would disappoint us if his love wasn't substantial, wasn't real, wasn't empowering, but it is. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates this love that he pours out through the Spirit. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise you, Jesus. So the question is, what does your fiery trial reveal? And what does it produce? Does it reveal an assumption, a make-believe? That's okay. You can come to repentance and find true saving faith. You can find a faith that has no qualifications, no addendums, no asterisks, no small print of your will inserted in the plan of God. You can find a faith that knows that you're a big zero. You're less than a zero. That you deserve nothing. What you do deserve is not good. And therefore, you are grateful to be able to place all your trust no longer in the cheating, deceiving, lying, parading pride of human perspective, but now in the God who calls those things that are not as though they were. In the God who is able to move in your hearts and protect you with his power if you'll take that power by faith. Something is being revealed these days. And as surely as we're glad we weren't God when he used the death of a two-year-old to save the soul of a grandmother, we're glad we're not God when we beg him 
to change a scenario in the church where persecution may be coming, hardships may be landing, and he doesn't do it. We can say with David, all my times are in your hands. If I had this together, I could call the shots. But what a fool of me to think I know what's needed. All I know that's needed is my unqualified trust in you. And if I get right to the gates of what I thought was you, I'll be prepared to stop if you show me I didn't have it quite right. I've got nothing to prove. I don't have faith in faith. I've got faith in God. Hallelujah. Is it okay if it intensifies in the house of God first? Is that okay with you? It's okay with me, Lord, if it's your plan. And if out of this you will reveal something that is better than fool's gold, that is stronger than death, which many waters cannot quench. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I may not see it. I remember somebody coming up to me at a time of extreme loss and saying, we went through something similar and we don't want to sound trite. But this sister said, I would not take it back. If you know who you really are and what you really deserve, you're going to look at the suffering and the trial that you go through. And in the moment, you're going to beg God for reprieve. But beyond it, you're going to say, I wouldn't take it back. It was working in me something far greater, an eternal weight of glory. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, the devil will beat you up. And if you don't have faith, you're not protected from his assault. You're protected by the power of God through your faith. God does not have faith for you. That is something you vest in him because of his worthiness, because of his provenness, because of his presence, because of the conviction of his word. The devil will, will, will try to sift you like wheat. He'll make tangled cobwebs, knots out of everything and say it was this and it was that and it was this and it was that. You just got to cut through all of it and say, God, I don't know what I believe, but I know who I believed and I'm persuaded. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hold on to your confession firm to the end for he who is promised is faithful. Hold on to it for it has great reward and you will reap if you do not lose heart. Amen. So Silas and Paul are sitting there and they start singing. And we got to ask ourselves the question, would the jail have shook if they hadn't started rejoicing? We'll never know, will we? And we'll never know the miracles that God might have worked. Not that we're counting on him working, not that we're bargaining with him to work, but we'll never know what protection he'll employ, what power he'll release if we'll have faith. And they were rejoicing because they were feeling that they had real gold. That's what Danny and Esther had been feeling. Oh, pain. Oh, a thousand questions. But they're also feeling, I still have joy. After all I've been through, I still got it. Can I read you a poem and then I'll be done. See, this is Bithynia. We know how rough the road will be. 
how heavy here the load will be. We know about the barricades that wait along the track, but we have set our soul ahead upon a certain goal ahead, and nothing left from hell to sky shall ever turn us back. We know how brief all fame must be. We know how crude world's game must be. We know how soon the cheering turns to jeering down the block. But there's a deeper feeling here that fate can't scatter reeling here in knowing we have battled with the final ounce in stock. We sing of no wild glory now, emblazoning some story now of mighty charges down the field beyond some guarded pit, but humbler tasks befalling us, set duties that are calling us, where nothing left from hell to sky shall ever, ever hold us back. Amen. Amen. I read that last night and it, it encouraged my heart. Thank you, Jesus. What's going to hold you back? Amen. Do you want to find out what's inside? Amen. Then don't shy away from the trial. And if it shows you something you don't want to see, know that there's faith that God can give you. You can receive faith right here and now as you hear his word. There's faith that's wanting to just come up in your heart. You can put a lid on it. <clears throat> if I believe that, what's going to happen to this? And if I do that, well, that's all the doubting that you need to reserve for self. But skip it for God. Amen. You can let faith arise in your heart right now. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, I could, I could get that under my belt. I could understand God. 
share one passage with you that the Lord was speaking to us about on Friday night. Just exactly, this is really just an amen to what uh, he's already speaking to us here. And it's from the same book that many of those were from, but it's, it's Paul in the beginning of 2 Corinthians. And he says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Why is he saying this? Is it because he wants as many people to feel sorry for him as possible? No, he's saying something is being worked in us. It's this symbiotic thing that suffering produces among us. And he's just said above here, he says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Read the whole passage sometime. It's really incredible. But he says, he says, we don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, beyond our capacity to endure, so that we despaired even of life. That's the place where we all ask that question. Why is this happening? He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. And then he answers the big question. So that we would not trust in ourselves. Hallelujah. Amen. That's what it was for. The suffering was demolishing the wrong faith Amen. to make room for the right faith. 
This happened to us so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who even raises the dead. Amen. Who has delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us with all of you helping through your prayers. Thank you, Jesus. I feel so grateful tonight that the Lord would send us the aid of affliction, the gift of suffering, so that we would lose confidence in this self that is always displacing the miracle-working faith that God has for us. Hallelujah.